Romans chapter 7. New, uh, new chapter. Verse 1. We're dealing with 1 through 4 today. So then if, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we can look into your word here. Father, I pray that, that you just give me the words to speak, Lord, that you, you would make me invisible, that we would see you high and lifted up from your text, um, and that we would see what your, your text would teach us this morning. We thank you for it. For giving it to us, for revealing yourself to us through your word. And I just pray this morning that you would, you would do so with us through these verses. In the name of Christ. So, by way of review, obviously we know this is Paul writing to the Romans there, the Roman Christians. He's dealing with his exposition of the gospel. He's teaching us what the gospel is, what it means. We see the picture of the gospel through the, go through, the, through the gospels, when we see the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, his earthly ministry, his, his life, death, burial, resurrection, we see all of that in the historical narrative portions. And then here in Romans, Paul's saying, this is what that means to you. Yes, this happened. This truly did happen, but this is what it means to you. And remember, we've already dealt with him going through the bad news first, dealing with fallen man. He's given us the good news, which is our, that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, right? And then we, we've dealt with our union with Christ and our union with Adam, which I, that was such a blessing to see. And like I, I mentioned, you can almost wrap up Romans chapter 1 through 3 as our union with Adam, and then it, he gets into our union with Christ, and then he shows the fruit of our justification. Um, and then, I'm not sure if you remember this, I want to have this as an introduction for this chapter too. That Romans 6 and 7 are almost a parenthesis in the book of Romans. Like Paul's going along, run 1 through 5, and he brings up some stuff in chapter 5 that he's like, i got to deal with this before I move on. So he starts to deal with those. Remember in chapter 6, he was answering the question that if we're sin abounds, grace did much more about Remember he said that. And then the question was, shall I sin more that grace may abound more? Right? That, that, that was, 
honestly be almost a logical, a logical question out of that. It's sin, where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. Should I continue to sin that grace may abound even more? Then in answering that question in chapter 6, he raised another objection in his answer. And that is, since we're not under the law anymore, shall I continue in sin? What was Paul's answer to both of those questions? It was God forbid. He said it twice. God forbid that we should continue in sin. That, that we should continue in sin and that we should continue in sin that grace may abound more. God forbid that we do that. But remember, those, the answer to those questions goes back to Romans chapter 5, where the question was raised. Chapter 6 answers the question from chapter 5. Now chapter 7, what we're about to start, is answering the question of the law. That would be raised from chapter 5 and verse 20. And again in chapter 6 and verse 14. Remember in chapter 5 verse 20 it says, The law entered that the offense might abound. Or that sin might abound. That's, the law came in, it entered alongside of that sin might abound. And then we saw in Romans 6.14, he says, you are not under the law. So then all of a sudden, you, you, you have these questions, right? And that's what Paul's dealing with right here. And he has to deal with these questions. He's already shown that we can't keep it. But to say that it entered, that, this, that sin might abound, is a little bit different, right? So here he's expounding on the law a little bit. And this is a little spoiler alert. When you go to the law, your answer should be, let me pull up my Bible. Your answer should be what it says in verse 24 of that chapter. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? When you're looking to the law, that's, that's where it takes you. That's where the law takes you. So I, I done spoiled the chapter for us. So now let's dive into the text. The first point I have is no more dominion from verse 1. Once again, Paul is declaring something that they should know. Isn't that what he says? Know ye not? Again, he says it. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he lives. This should be something that's in our minds already. Remember, he's already said those words a couple times to us in Romans chapter 6. Know you not? Like, these are things that you should know. I shouldn't have to teach this to you. It means to not be ignorant. Actually, the word that's used there is the word that could be translated that we would get our word agnostic from. So, is, is don't be an agnostic to this, right? We all know what that is, right? And you know what? He says, as a Christian, you do know this because he says, because I am speaking to them that know the law. Don't be ignorant of this, for I speak to them that know the law. To the Christians there. Paul knows his audience knows the law. They weren't ignorant of the law, but he goes a little further here. He says, the law hath dominion over a man as long as it lives. As long as he lives is what the text says. But it could be translated it. And I think that's a better translation there. I think every translation has he. But that could be. And every commentator says it should be it. <laughs> is I think it's better translated as it. The law hath dominion over a man as long as it lives. As long as the law lives, it has dominion over a man. 
and that it is the law. This is what Paul is saying. And he is saying that they already know this. I think in part they know this because Paul has already dealt with the fruit of the law in Romans chapter 6. Let us remember when, when Paul said that the law entered, why? So that sin might abound. Then he tells us the wages of sin is death. So he's already kind of dealt with the law a little bit, right? He says the law entered that sin might abound, but then when sin, the wages of sin is death. So in other words, the law leads to death. Law enters, sin abounds, then death follows. And we can actually see this in our direct context. Look at uh, chapter 6 and verse 9. For I was alive without... No, sorry. This is why it's better to have the Bible here. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Death has no more dominion over him. That sounds kind of like our text. What about uh, verse 14? For sin shall not have dominion over you. And then in our verse here, in verse 1, it says, The law hath dominion over a man as long as it liveth. You see, the, you see the similarities there? Law, death, and sin, it says pretty much none of them have dominion over us anymore. You aren't under that dominion anymore. The dominion of the law, that dominion of sin, and that dominion of death. That's what Paul is teaching here. And if you remember that word for dominion, it's, I mean, we, we should know what that means, but it means to, to lord over or to rule over. So the law of sin and death, you as a Christian, that does not rule over you anymore. It is not your king. It is not your Lord. We're partakers of the new covenant. We're not under that old covenant law anymore. It does not have dominion in here anymore. And that's what you should know and not be ignorant of or not be agnostic to. Paul goes on though. He says the law doesn't have dominion over us because it's dead. That's pretty much what Paul's saying here, right? The law is dead to you as a Christian. How is it dead? Because Jesus Christ came and fulfilled it. By that, I mean he kept it completely. He kept every single little tiny part of the law. All of it. The Old Testament law was given and nobody could ever keep it. Nobody. Nobody ever kept it. Remember, sin entered that... Or the law entered that sin might abound. So nobody kept the law. So not only did no man keep it, but sin abounded when the law entered. Then Christ comes, right? Born of a, of, of a virgin. Born, what's it say in Galatians? Under the law. He was born under the law. What law? This law that is talking about. This law that's dead to us now? He was born under that law. And he kept all of it. Every little jot and tittle of that law, he kept all of it. So let me put it like this. Jesus never did anything wrong. Ever. He never broke the law. He also only did what was right. Meaning, the points of the law that command you to do something, he always did those. It wasn't just the thou shalt nots, but the thou shalt. He, he did all of them. He, he withheld from sinning, and he all, always did what was right and what was righteous. 
He kept all of it. The negative portions and the positive portions. Or you could say it like this. He never committed a sin of omission or a sin of commission. God said do that under that law. He did it. God said don't do this under that law. He didn't do it. His whole life. <laughs> he was sinless and righteous. Never having sinned against the law and fulfilling all the righteousness under the law, then He died under that law. As though He broke all of it. Do we grasp that? Christ, who never for one second broke that law, died under that law as though He broke all of it all the days of His life. Why? Because you broke it. Because you broke that law. Christ died under that law. Not because he broke that law. He died in your place, Christian. Then three days later, after dying under that law, he rose from the grave. Victorious, right? And in that, he completely fulfilled the law and has done away. I'm going to expound on this a little bit more. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Or chapter 3. Verse 6. Second Corinthians three, six. I was going to try to do it, but I don't know. Second Corinthians three, six through eleven. Jason, are you there? You said Second Corinthians three, six through eleven. Yeah. yeah. Will you read that? Thank you. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, or the law, but of the Spirit? For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness is far exceeding in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? You notice something? The ministration of death written and engraved in the stones. What was that? It was done away. That's what it says. For if, that, if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceeding glory. And then it says, For that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. What, what remains? The new covenant. That's what we're under now. The old covenant's gone. All of it is gone. Christ fulfilled it. It's gone. We're under the new covenant now. We have new covenant law, right? We don't need to look back to that, that old covenant. And turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. And verse 7. Through 13. Hebrews 8, 7.
7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbors and each one his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember the sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What's old and obsolete according to that? The old covenant, right? He says it's ready to vanish away. We're going to get into this in our Wednesday night studies. Um, I'm not going to deal with it right now. It, 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 was, it was about to be gone. The old covenant was about to be gone. And it says it's old and obsolete. And then it says in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then there should have been no, no place to seek after a second covenant. So that old, that old covenant was, was, had fault with it, right? The fault wasn't in the covenant itself. It was in man that could not keep that covenant. And then Christ came and kept that covenant for us and he established that new covenant. And that old covenant was getting ready to pass away. And it did. It passed away. The law has now vanished away and is dead. It's dead to you as a Christian. Therefore, it has no more dominion over you. And actually, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that that law is dead. And I'm not under that law, and that law does not have dominion over me anymore. You know why? Because what does it say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? It says the letter kills. That's talking about the law. The law kills, but the Spirit gives life. As a Christian, do you have the Spirit of God? Yes, you do. And the Spirit gives life. Looking back to that old law, it's going to bring about death. That's what that, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then as it says there in Hebrews... That new covenant that God established, He was going to write His laws upon our hearts. How does He do that? By giving us the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have a Spirit. And you have life. Let's move in our text there in Romans 7. The second, my second point is widowed of the law and married to Christ. Let me read those verses again. For the woman which had a husband is bound by law to her husband so long as he lives. But the, if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. You're like, what in the world, Paul? <laughs> you talk about the law and all of a sudden you go to this. Marriage and divorce and, and this stuff, like, 
They just. If you you can people and if people do this, they pull that out of context all the time. Paul's talking about the law. This text, though, it can it can teach us two different truths right here. And I don't think that's Paul's point. Paul's point is not teach us two truths. Paul's point in using marriage was that was obvious. I'm going to use something very obvious to you to teach you a truth about the law. And that's what he's doing. That's why, that's why he uses this marriage right here. But I do think it can teach us something in our day and age about marriage. Because we kind of reject this truth or ignore this truth, don't we? It says, the woman which has a husband is bound by law to her husband so long as he lives. And us in our culture are like, what? <laughs> Paul, come on. What if they fell out of love with one another? What if they want different things in life now? We just, we, 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 we just want different things in life now. What if they grew apart and now they're just attracted to somebody else? I'm just now all of a sudden I'm attracted to this person. I don't think we should go forward in our marriage. What if they just aren't attracted to their spouse at all? They just don't attract me anymore. They used to attract me 10 years ago, but now, you know, I've had three kids and she's not as attractive anymore, right? God forbid. What if her husband's just a lazy bum? <laughs> you know, he's just a lazy bum. What's Paul say? He says, as long as he lives, you are bound. This goes both ways as well. Before I get an amen, Jason, this goes both ways as well. The husband is bound as well, as long as she lives. Even if she can't cook. <laughs> what if she's a bad mother? What if she just gets on my nerves, you know? She gets on my last nerve. She's just not on my nerves. She's on the very last one. I can't stand it anymore. We just don't see eye to eye anymore, Paul. What are you talking about? What is Paul saying? As long as she lives, work out your problems. Till death do us part. Isn't that what we all said? However, Paul's point in giving us his picture is to show us our relationship with the law as Christians. It's not necessarily about marriage. You Christians may have been bound by law before Christ. However, that law has died. Your old husband has died and now you are married to another. So long as you are married, as you're married to that law, you're bound to that law and you're under the headship of that law. That law has dominion over you. You wonder why Paul uses the husband as the law here? You notice that, right? Paul uses, it says as long as the wife is bound to the husband, the husband's the law. Why? Because the husband's the head. The husband is the head of the wife. The law was the head of us. The law, when the law told you go do something, you did it, right? That's what you, you had to do. I know this ain't so popular in our culture, right? It's called headship. We dealt a little bit with that in Romans chapter 5 when we dealt with the, the headship of Adam and the headship of Christ. We didn't so much deal with our headship as, as men, as husbands. We're the head. Now that doesn't mean we... We disrespect and treat our wife. That means we, we should treat them better than anybody else on this earth treats them. 
But when it comes down to it, you're responsible for your family. Just as the husband is head over the wife, the law was head over you. Meaning you, that means all of us here. What Paul is using us as the wife in the context of all Christians. You as wife obeyed your husband. So the law, the husband, had dominion over you as your head in what the law said you had to do. But now, as a Christian, that law has died by Christ. That husband is gone, and now you are married to Christ. We are called, what's the church called? The bride of Christ. We are married to Christ. We're not, we're not called the bride of the law, right? We're, we're the bride of Christ. You are loosed from the law. That's what the text says. It says you are loosed from the law. The word here for loose. I love this. It can be translated unemployed. You're unemployed from the law. As a Christian, you're unemployed from the law. That's a great picture by what he just said in Romans 6.23, right? For the wages of sin is death. That's a wage. What do you get from... How do you earn a wage? You have a job. You're employed. You come to your employer. They pay you a wage. Well, this is saying the wages of sin is death. But you're unemployed from that law now as a Christian. It's not my employer anymore. You are employed to Christ. Your name tag says Christ. Not the law anymore. He is your employer now. You work for Him. Not the law anymore. The, the law as an ex-employer and ex-husband has died by Christ. And now in Him and with His Spirit you live. This is what... This is in my notes, but I need to be careful. This is why we're going out on the 12th this Saturday. Why? Because we want people to live by the Spirit in Christ. Not because we want to go out there and be controversial or get any attention or anything like that. I want people to live for Christ and bless His name because He is worthy. Wages of sin and death, you were employed by the law, but now you're employed by Christ. So now being married to Christ, we're married to Christ, don't be an adulterer and go back to the law. Lloyd Jones in this talks about how he's already Paul's already shown us that we can't be justified by the law. We can't stand before God on that day and stand just because of the law. But Romans chapter 7 teaches us we can't be sanctified by the law. You can't look to that old law and make yourself better. You look to Christ. Now looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Don't go dig up that grave and pull the law back in and look to that. You put yourself back under it. For now you are married to another and that other gives us life. Let's move forward to verse 4. Christ defeated that old husband. Verse 4 says, Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the grave, raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. You are dead to the law by the body of Christ. What does that mean? I think we all have a little bit of 
idea what that means. And probably a lot of us have a right idea what that means. But let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 4. Sacrifices for sin, thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written to me to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offerings, and burnt offerings, and offerings for sin, thou wouldest not, neither had pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, he, that's again, covenant. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and oftentimes the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. But this man after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down at the right hand of God. The Old Testament men, the Old Testament priests, the the, the families would bring the, the animals, right? In the Old Testament priests, they would slaughter these animals. What does it say in verse 12 about those animals? It says it's not even possible that they could take away sins. All those animals slaughtered, it wasn't even possible for them to take away sins. You know what those animals did? They pointed to Christ. They were saying, this was me bringing forth my animal sacrifice to say, I'm trusting in the coming Messiah, who's not here yet, but he will be here, and he will take away my sins. So, this, those animals can never take away sin. God, in fulfillment, and we can go through many of these, the Old Testament prophecies, sent forth his lamb. It wasn't the, the men bringing lamb, lambs anymore. It was God's lamb. Which takes away and which takes away the sins of the world. And his lamb was his son. And as John the Baptist had said, he is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So the Lamb of God takes away sin, but the lambs of men could never take away sin. God the Son came into the world and took on flesh. That's what this is talking about. He took on a body, like the body that you and I have. It's what we call the hypostatic union. That he is 100% man and 100% God. The God-man. Christ Jesus came and fulfilled the law in his body. He lived, he was, remember it said, born of a woman, born under the law, in his body. He came in the flesh and fulfilled the law. He literally lived just like you and I do. He literally was hungry and thirsty and he ate and he drank and he slept. Remember, he was tired. He was sleeping on the boat and he wept like you and I did. And it says in Hebrews that he was tempted just like you and I are, but never sinned. 
He was truly man and truly God. And then it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sin, should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were here healed. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. What's the tree? It's the cross. It's called the great exchange. He took our sins upon him. In exchange, he gives us perfect righteousness. The righteousness of completely and perfectly keeping every little tiny point of all is given to you. Why? Because you did it? No. Because He fulfilled the law in His body and paid for your sins in His body. Notice what else it says in our text here. That's what it's talking about when, when it's in his, by His body. Notice what else it says. To Him who is raised from the dead. So it wasn't just that he came and he lived under the law and he took on a flesh, lived under the law, died upon that cross in his body, but in, he was raised from the dead in his body. He fulfilled the law in his body. He paid for our sins in his body and his body was raised from the grave and seen of over 500 people. One of which people like to call Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas touched him, right? I won't believe unless I touch your scars. Here's my hand, here's my side. And he touched him. What was his response? My Lord and my God is what Thomas said. And what did Thomas' life look like after that? Thomas was a missionary. His life became a missionary and he was murdered for his faith. You think he believed that Christ rose from the dead? So much for doubting, right? He went to his death because Christ is risen. So what should our response be? Our text tells us. I'm going to use that in our application portion. It says Christ did all of that in order that we may bear fruit to God. So application right here. we got to call to faith and repentance. To bring this message to our feet here. To those that don't know Christ. The gospel has been preached. The gospel which is said is the power of God unto salvation. God uses His gospel to save His people. That's the only thing He uses. He uses His gospel to save His people. From Scripture, you can never argue that God uses anything else apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ to save His people. It's been preached. The gospel of the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's in our text, and it's been pulled out and, it, and presented to us here, right? Christ has fulfilled the law. He's died for sin. He's risen from the grave. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father where He has sat down victorious, ruling and reigning right now. So the call for you is to believe in Him and repent of your sins. And if you don't know Him and you're still under the law, that law will kill you. That law cannot be kept by you. Oh, but my good works outweigh my bad works, right? That's not the standard of God's justice. God's standard is perfection. 
God, being holy and just, demands perfection. So the question is, are you perfect? Oh, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than my neighbor. I'm better, you know, Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein, these guys. I'm, I'm much better than these guys. If God were to judge me by that, I would go to heaven, right? That's not his standard. His standard are you as good as his son. Are you as good as Christ? That's the standard. And we know that none of us are. We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sinned against Him. We've all broken God's law. Oh, but I've kept most of it. James says if you keep the whole law, you have offended one point, you're guilty of all of it. Go ahead, 613 commands. Well, I kept 612. Well, you're guilty of 613. There isn't one of us here who is being honest who would say that we never sin, yet that's God's standard. And as we saw last week, that those sins that we commit earn us death, eternal death. They earn us God's justice. But, in, but God in His mercy has poured out His justice on His Son for His elect. And He calls us to believe upon Him. Am I one of His elect? I believe the gospel. <laughs> you believe the gospel, you, you sure are one of His elect. How do, I, how do I become one of His elect? You believe His gospel. And that just shows that you are already elect. There's a picture, uh, a picture in my mind, you know, when, when we're walking into heaven, you know, it, it, maybe it has a door that says, whosoever will may come. And then you walk through the door and you turn around and it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Come to him. Trust in Him. What must I do to be saved? Isn't that the question? In Acts, what Peter said, go get baptized. Go take communion. Go give to your local church. Go your church attendance. What's your church attendance like? I know you miss. Like you, you only show up ten percent of the time. He didn't say any of that, did he? What must I do to be saved? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. To the believer here, are you still going back to that ex-husband to look for life? Isn't that what we do? We go, we go, we look through this law and we think, oh, we're doing so good now. We're doing so good. I feel so good about myself. You know why? Because I'm obeying. And then when we're not, what do we feel like? God doesn't love me. He never changes any, any of this. You, you can obey as good as you can obey as a human or disobey as bad as you can disobey, if you're in Christ, you are treated the same with an everlasting, eternal love. There's no life in that old law. We in the new law have, or in the new covenant, have a new law. It's called the law of love, right? That's what Christ said. Love God and love your neighbor. Are we doing that? Even on this, we fail on a regular basis, don't we? But when and where we fail, we should be seeking repentance and believing on Christ as our advocate and as our redeemer. That's what I'm asking you to do this morning. 
Repent of those dead works of that sin that you're clinging to and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, but Jeremy, I'm already a believer. Well, keep believing and believe even more. Our second point and last point is our call to war. It states in the end of our text here in Romans that the law used to be our husband, but is dead, and we are married to another who fulfilled the law and killed it by his death in our place and then, and then has risen from the grave. That, or in order that, you should bring forth fruit unto God. All of that, so you should bring forth fruit unto God. So the question is, are you bringing forth fruit? As a Christian, are you bringing forth fruit? You see, this is the opposite of what a lot of so-called Christians do, though, isn't it? They say they, they come to Christ to get something. And they just continually want from Him. It's always, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. There's a false gospel out there that teaches that, right? That you believe upon Christ, you're going to get rich. Tell that to the early disciples. Tell that to Christ who said he didn't have a bed to lay his head on. Our prayer life sometimes reflects this too, doesn't it? Even as believers, it's always just asking for something. God, give me this. God, give me that. God, give me this. God, give me this. And it's just nonstop. That's all we're ever doing is asking for something. Consuming on ourselves. Just take, take, take. But the, this text says the opposite. It says if you are in Christ, you are in Christ for you to give. You should bring forth fruit. What fruit are you bringing? You know, the people of God have always brought forth their first fruits. I mean, you can go back to the Old Covenant. There was first fruits. It was always the first fruits. It wasn't the last fruits. Why? Because those are the old moldy ones that we have. You know, they sat in the fridge too long. We didn't, we didn't make it to that fruit. There you go, God. That's not. You give forth your first fruits. And it's always been like that with the people of God. Meaning God doesn't get your seconds. He's given you everything too. You know, we, we forget about that, right? He's given us everything that we have. And we ought to give back our first fruit. Now people think this is mainly about money, but it's, it's everything. It's everything. That's the first fruit. It's the fruit first in our life of our time, of our resources, of our money, of everything. We are to give the first fruits to God. God, you get first. But then I won't be able to pay my bills. You think God can't pay your bill? Bringing forth fruit to God this morning. That's our call. Turn with me one, one last uh, section here. Galatians chapter 5. See this stuff in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, 
faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. One fruit. All of that is one fruit. That's fruit that we shouldn't be displaying. Fruit of the Spirit. Do you have a spirit as a Christian? When the Spirit comes, He brings that fruit. Now these fruits are, this fruit is of character. But they lead to fruit of action, right? As you see, love is fruit. But love, love, love is something that we must display it. Right? Isn't that what John teaches us in 1 John chapter 3? He says, if you say you, you love your brother and you see he has need and you don't help him, how does the love of God in you? You can't say I love my brother and let him die of starvation while you're consuming food. That's, a, that's an extreme thing, but that's, that's, that's what we ought not to do, right? We should be displaying fruit. All of that was done in order that you may bring forth fruit. You see that in the text. So let's bring forth abundant fruit. Because our Lord and husband has died for our sins. Rose from the dead. And is seated at the right hand of the Father. Making intercession for us right now. Amen.